stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. The word psychopath gets thrown around a lot. But I mean, psychopathy is a, a very specific thing. And, and some of the stereotype does play into to what constitutes being a psychopath. But how do psychopaths see the world? I mean, how do their brains work? And there's, there seems to be an inherent paradox when it comes to psychopathy that these are master manipulators. They know how people think. They know how to use these people to their own ends. But there's also a, an antisocial side to it where, in, in other ways, they're really not in tune with how people are thinking or how people are feeling. So how can both be true? Well, our next guest thought about or thought about answering that question in a rather interesting way by convincing uh, state authorities in Connecticut to give her access to inmates at the maximum security prison to study actual psychopaths and to try to understand how their minds work. Ariel Baskin Summers, a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Yale University and the lead author of this uh, newly published study. Professor Baskin Summers, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the question of what is a psychopath and to help us understand what it is. I know people are familiar with the word. I think people have their own concept of what a psychopath is, but how do we define it? Psychopathy is really defined as a neurodevelopmental disorder that encompasses four separate traits, including interpersonal problems. So that might be um, lack of genuine relationships, glibness, superficial charm, affective problems. So that's shallow affect, callousness, um, impulsive behavior. So kind of living day to day, maybe impulsivity in terms of aggression and chronic antisocial behavior. So showing any social behavior early in life. Um, whether that's anything from theft to truancy to more significant uh, criminal actions um, like murder, assault, uh, drug crimes, and so on. And so a psychopath is really someone who is represented by a combination of all four of those characteristics. And we see signs of psychopathy very early in life, um, which is why we refer to it often as a neurodevelopmental disorder. Interesting. And is it more common than we realize? Psychopathy is about 1% of the general population, which is the same rate as uh, schizophrenia in the general population. But within incarcerated offenders, it accounts for about 25% of offenders. So it's much more common among the offender population and, you know, at a similar rate as some other um, psychiatric disorders uh, in the general population. So to go about studying psychopaths, I suppose that means uh, finding those who have been diagnosed as such. And that led you to uh, maximum security prison in Connecticut, where you were able to to work with them, study them directly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like, what's your best chance to find these individuals? So if you study them in the general population, you might have to go through you know, a lot of people to get individuals who would be diagnosed with psychopathy. If you want your best shot, then you would need to go um, to either prison or jail population. Um, So I was lucky enough to be able to get the permission of the Department of Corrections in Connecticut to set up laboratories within within the prisons in Connecticut. And unlike other systems like in Europe, psychopathy is not actually assessed during our normal intake process. So my team had to go in and do all of the assessments before we then did any other sort of cognitive or behavioral testing. 
So of the uh, inmates that you studied, how many were, were determined to be uh, psychopathic? So we, in the present study that we had, it was a total of 106. And so 22 of them met a diagnosis of psychopathy. Um, of our, we've now interviewed over 300 um, inmates. And I would say it is right about at that 22 to 25% mark of the people we've interviewed. All right. And, and so this is about determining, I, I think, how their, their brains work. And let's take a step back because we're dealing with something that's known as, as theory of mind. Explain what that is. So theory of mind is basically our ability to take the perspective of others. And that's something we develop very early, right? Yes, it's something that as infants we begin to develop. Um, and so it's, it's infants being able to consider where their caregiver may be looking. Um, it's infants or toddlers being able to consider where someone is putting something um, or taking something away. And then as adults, it allows us to consider how other people might be thinking about our actions. We might make adjustments to our behavior with just our ability to try and represent the thought of that other person. So it's very important for social emotional development. One thing to be clear about of this study that we had was that we only looked at the cognitive component of theory of mind, which mm -hmm. is truly just representing the thoughts of others. Theory of mind is a multidimensional construct and there are affective or emotional components, which is, can you represent the feelings of other people? And that we did not address in this study. There's larger data to suggest that psychopathic individuals are deficient in affective or emotional theory of mind. So they have difficulty identifying the emotions of others. But until this study, there was actually no evidence that they had any cognitive deficits related to theory of mind. Because it, it seems like a paradox that psychopaths are perceived to, to have this ability to, to understand what people are thinking and be able to manipulate them that way. But at the same time, it, it seems like a very antisocial kind of disorder where they're, they're really not thinking or, or care about what others are thinking. Exactly. And, and that was that exact paradox was what interested myself and my co-authors, Lindsay Drayton and Lori Santos, to really look at is there a more nuanced way where we could measure theory of mind. The vast majority of theory of mind tasks are, are very explicit. You watch a movie or you read a story about someone like someone named Sally and you're asked, what is Sally thinking in the story or what did Sally see in the movie? And that's only one part of theory of mind that very explicit part of theory of mind. There's this other part, which is the automatic component, which is when you're not trying to take someone else's perspective, does their perspective or thoughts kind of seep into your own? So it's like when I'm teaching a class in front of undergraduates, I'm not trying to take my student's perspective, but if someone's like chomping on gum in the first row or like rolling their eyes or yawning, what they're doing is going to influence maybe what I'm doing. And that's very automatic. So that was the part that we wanted to focus on as well, because we believe that that might account for the paradox you described. How is it that psychopaths seem to be able to take the perspective of others, but yet engage in behaviors that are, are very callous and antisocial? Right. And so how do we explain that then? So what we ended up finding in this study was that when asked to deliberately take the perspective of other individuals, psychopaths can do that. 
but that they had a diminished propensity to take the perspective of others, meaning that they didn't automatically take the perspective of others. So they would not care about anyone yawning or chewing gum or, you know, rolling their eyes in my class. They would effectively be able to ignore that. And what that might really come down to is that because of that, they have the ability to engage in perspective taking when it serves their needs, when it's deliberate, when it will help them get what they want, they can very deliberately take the perspective of whomever they're interacting with. But outside of that context, they are able to also effectively ignore the feelings of other people or the thoughts of other people. So if me taking someone else's perspective isn't necessary for me to achieve my goals or for me to get what I want, then psychopaths, since they lack that natural propensity to consider the thoughts of others, are less likely to do it. And so that helps explain that paradox because you can see when I really want something, whether it's money or someone to do something for me, I can do what it takes to get in their head and influence their behavior and get them to see things my way. But I'm not going to be stopped by their thinking or their perspective if it conflicts with my own goals. I mean, and, and judging from the individuals you, you study here, are they... I mean, are they aware that they are, are psychopaths? Are they aware that they see the world differently than others? So in our research, we don't tell them explicitly the diagnosis that we might be giving them. Some, because the term psychopathy is kind of thrown in every you know, popular TV show now, yeah. some might come in and, and self-diagnose. Um, but part of our research is not to actually formally do the assessment. We just do that as a, a program of of research, but in terms of their behavior and how they describe things, I think it's complicated. They sometimes see them as themselves as being different than others. They often refer to themselves as being black sheep or not understanding why other people don't see things the way they see things. But other times they describe behaviors and relationships that seem pretty normative and pretty much like you know what you or I or others might experience. And that is what is so fascinating about the psychopath. It's not like they are every single moment of the day walking around conning people, being manipulative, um, you know, being antisocial or aggressive, but they're able to have these kind of contradictions in their behavior that sometimes make them seem kind of more normative and sometimes not. And why do you think it's important then to understand this? I mean, obviously, we're not going to cure psychopathy, but what, why does it matter? What, what can we learn from this? One of the major motivators of the work that my lab does is that if we don't understand the underlying causes or mechanisms of people's behavior, we're going to have a very hard time identifying it early and eventually intervening. So psychopathy, for example, accounts for a disproportionate amount of crime in the United States. Over two-thirds of the cost of crime can be accounted for by psychopathy. That's because they're more likely to recidivate than other chronic offenders. They're more likely to be referred to treatment, yet our current treatment efforts are actually ineffective for these individuals. So it's basically, you know, telling someone to go to treatment knowing that the treatment's not going to work for them. And so we're already spending a lot of money on these individuals. And that's leaving aside any of the kind of suffering or emotional damage that these individuals might cause for other people. And so if we're doing that and we've identified these individuals as being problematic, then I think we need to use research like this to try and do better. 
because there's some evidence from a neurodevelopmental perspective that if we identify kids who have a combination of conduct disorder and callous unemotional traits, these are believed to be the precursors to psychopathy, that if you intervene early on through using certain parenting interventions, you could actually reduce the impact of those traits on, on a child's behavior. But we wouldn't know what to do with those kids if we didn't understand the mechanisms causing their behavior. Right. Well, it's quite fascinating, quite important, as you say. Uh, we'll leave it there. Professor Baskin-Summers, uh, really appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. Well, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. All right, there you go. That's uh, Ariel Baskin-Summers, professor of psychology and psychiatry at Yale University. Our number here, 403-974-8255. Bit of time left for you, the things to get to. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.